someone in a village in India generally can just throw seeds into a field and they could get some food. But in China, because so much of it is just brown, dry land, it's really impossible for an average farmer even to grow things. And so the problem is more severe in China and more real. Welcome to CDT China Cast, a production of ChinaDigitalTimes.net. This is Michael Zhao, and today we will be talking to Jahangir Pochar, a correspondent for the Boston Globe in Beijing. Jahangir has covered China for almost four years, and is a frequent contributor to San Francisco Chronicle and other publications. Let's start by talking about your your trip to Xinjiang. How was the trip, and how how do you feel about this trip? Well, you know, it was the first uh, official foreign ministry trip that I took in China. Generally, the Boston Globe does not really allow me to take these trips because、um, they're so controlled. But to Xinjiang and Tibet, where it's very difficult for foreign journalists to get in, they make an exception. And Xinjiang was the most colonized place that I've ever been to. The feeling of、um, a place that has been colonized, where peoples、um, are basically indigenous people are really living under a foreign influence that really looks down on them and 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 controls their destiny. Though you know I'm from India, previously colonized country, the first time I went to a place that actually felt so colonized. So, what what are some of the striking differences between India and Xinjiang as you talk about、uh, the 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 nature of、uh, being colonized? In India, people speak English. One of the interesting things is that it, it's widely put out that you know the fact that India speaks English is a good thing,、uh, and that's universally embraced as, as as that. But of course, it has a good element, but. There's also a huge cost to be paid for for being an English-speaking country, where you lose touch with your own culture, your own intellectual ideas.、Um, and it's the same thing in Xinjiang. You see people whose、uh, local languages, you know, Uyghur,、um, sort of being forced to speak Han Chinese. And if they can't speak Han Chinese, they can't get good jobs. They can't get good opportunities. It's very difficult for them to feel a full, productive part of society. Did you choose the topic well before your trip, or how how did that work out?、Uh, I mean, about the、um, the exporting of sand. The environmental effect of 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 China's development is is affecting everyone、uh, everywhere in the world almost. And that、um, for people who haven't seen seen the story, it starts with the idea that sand, dust has become China's largest export or, or, or newest export rather. And that's because there's、um, uh, an increase in the desertification in China, and wind is essentially carrying、uh, sand and dust from China all the way up to、uh, around the world to the United States and Canada. Today, it's 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 almost unknown. So you have people in the United States or Europe or anywhere else buying Chinese goods in the billions of dollars, or hundreds of billions of dollars, having no real visibility into the process, the pain. That that and the cost, the full cost, not just the financial cost, the environmental cost, the health cost, the human cost, that goes to producing that. And so, as a journalist, you try to make people aware of that. And 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 desertification is clearly one of those ways in which the cost is now slowly beginning to hit、um, people all over the world. Can you describe to me and also our audience what a How how serious is Gansu,、uh, and also other parts of Western China compared to city, cities like Beijing? I know that Beijing is quite serious already. From the desertification point of view,、uh, 
Um, it's pretty bad. If you look at China on a map, a relief map, it's basically almost all of central and western China is brown. Um, right. If you look at India on a map, for example, all of it almost is green. Someone in a village in India generally can just throw seeds into a field and they could get some food. And so India's problems are largely distributive. But in China, because so much of it is just brown, dry land, it's really impossible for an average farmer even to grow things. And so the problem is more severe in China and more real. I would imagine at least two, three hundred million people live in terrain that is so aggressive and so difficult to live in. There just is no water in those areas. Water is scarce. Um, villages, people have small pieces of land that are in any case probably not enough to sustain themselves uh, for food and also for income. If you talk to people in villages, they will tell you of how the desert or dry dry, dry patches have been extending and, and expanding um, over the last five, six years. And you can actually see um, in occasional places houses, and I believe, and I didn't see this, but I've, been, I've seen pictures and satellite images of entire villages that have just been taken over by the desert. What are some of the other impressive places or experiences you've had covering China over the past few years? Oh, you know, China is just so many impressive places. It's just an amazing country. I personally think Western China is very interesting. The trips, for example, Qinghai, um, from where I also did the desertification story, it's got to be one of the most beautiful places I've been to in the world. I mean, just um, you can get into a car, take a road across the steppes, you see these Tibetan herders on these verdant green hills with this amazing blue sky. It's like a cross between Mongolia and Tibet, which I guess Qinghai is. And you can um, feel lost in time. I mean, there's a timelessness about the place. And apart from the physical beauty, it has a remarkably clean, fresh, and pure spiritual feel. Have your impressions of China changed a lot, you know, as compared to uh, three, four years ago when you just started here? So I guess you go through three phases. You come and you think, wow, it's great. You scratch and you begin to see the problems and you get really worried. And then you realize how the country is coping with it, why the social mechanism and the mindset is such that it allows the Communist Party to exist. You begin to understand the actual goals of the Communist Party and how that system will actually work and improve itself. So I'm not one of those who thinks China is going to collapse tomorrow uh, because of its problems. I actually think it will make it. Um, and in a sense that I began to realize that about a year ago, that uh, the Communist Party, for all its flaws, does seem committed to the development of China. It, its own concept of development, to be sure, which needs improvement and change. But it is committed to that. It is not just in power only to make money, only to be corrupt. Um, and, and, and sort of that was not something I understood very well four years ago when I first came here. So what are some of your takes on, on the challenges or problems that the Communist Party is now facing? And, and what would you hope uh, you know, they can do to address its problems or, or make improvements in those areas, say, you know, political reform or, or things like that? I mean, political reform is the standout issue. I mean, China is just becoming too big and too complex. 
to be controlled. Unfortunately, they have not invested enough time and they haven't allowed an alternative to develop. And so there's some obvious tension there. My sense is after the next party Congress, um, when they should announce a successor to Hu Jintao, they should begin to work on a process of more of more change, of a little bit more uh, negotiation. They like to call it negotiation in the political process. And one of the interesting ways we might see this happen is through the eight democratic parties in China. Many people, as you know, there are technically eight democratic parties in China, opposition parties that existed before the Communist Party took over in '49, but which still exist on paper. And so far, they've been basically, you know, totally powerless. But I've been noticing that over the last uh, year or two, they've been given a little bit more voice, a little bit larger role. And I hope that that might be one of the many ways in which they create more of space for external people or outside forces to check and balance the Communist Party. Joe Khan and Jim Yardley won a Pulitzer for their, right. uh, their work on rule of law. But I hope that in the next uh, year or two, they will also start talking about checks and balances in the same way and start working on those issues. Because if that doesn't happen, then, you know, again, the concerns of, of political instability of the system going wrong will start rising. How, how do you find, you know, you two as a couple and also both as journalists based in China covering the country, although you are doing print and she's doing radio, do you find this sort of arrangement very mutually beneficial to uh, each other's work or there's also competition and things like that? We do travel together. For example, we were in Guizhou together and uh, the Xinjiang trip, Mary Kay didn't come. I was alone. And so we sort of mix it up. Also someone, you know, to intellectually to discuss the same issues with. Of course, there can be arguments because we differ on <laughs> um, some issues and I can be a little bit more accommodating of some of China's quote-unquote Asian-ness, um, and Mary Kay can have more insight into some of its other elements, and so we sort of feed off each other. But, you know, what's interesting in China is that because all journalists here have a bond, because sort of we face a common quote-unquote you know, enemy, we jokingly, lovingly like to call the Communist Party and the government, because we're always facing pressure and challenges from them it sort of unites the journalists into a sort of common bond. And so journalists who can be quite um, cantankerous with each other, you know, most places in the world. In China, what's nice is that we're quite a strong community. With the Olympics coming up, what are some of the big items in, in the coming two years? And, and you, you, are you going to stay over uh, beyond the Olympics? Or? Uh, I'm not sure I might do that. What I find interesting about the Olympics is that, you know, covering them as Olympics, the sports and stuff like that, no, that's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't motivate me too much. I think what would be interesting about the Olympics is that because there's going to be so much global attention on China, mm -hmm. a lot of different groups are, I think, trying to find ways to use the opportunity to express their discontents. You know, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, uh, democratic people. I would be very interested to see how they actually use the Olympics to do that. What would it be if, if, if people walked into Olympic stadiums wearing a badge with a Dalai Lama's photograph or with a badge that said, you know, free Tibet? What if foreigners would give handed out those badges at airports and they did that? You know, as I've heard people talk about planning to do.
What would the Chinese do? Would they arrest them? Would they tell foreigners you got to take the badge off? You'd have TV cameras, you know, catching them doing that all over the country. I mean, the city. Um, what if people release hot air balloons that you know drop messages on crowds? What if there are demonstrations? Thank you, Jahangir, for talking with us today. This is Michael Zhao, and you've been listening to CTT China Cast.